Good evening, I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Justice as Sanctuary. In my book of 1979, I, I had a fancy. I said, one day I'm walking in Amsterdam and I meet an, a man from outer space, an ambassador of God or whatever. And he asked me, show me the world. I take him along and we happen to see a man killing another man. And he's awarded the Victoria Cross. The next day we walk on the street and we see another man killing another man. He's put into life for prison. So the man, God some better, asked me, explain that. And I can't. I can't explain why one killing is awarded and another killing is punished. God will never understand it. Herman Bianchi is a Dutch criminologist, historian, and poet. Until his retirement in 1989, he was professor of criminology at the Free University of Amsterdam, where he had also been a dean of the law school. During his career, he became well-known in the Netherlands and throughout Europe for his criticism of imprisonment. Imprisonment, he said, was sometimes justified as public safety, but could never be an instrument of justice. Justice for him meant peacemaking, not just socially sanctioned revenge on the offender. As an alternative, he suggested in his book, Justice as Sanctuary, we ought to look to the past and revive older and more humane practices, like the right of sanctuary and the duty of reparation. This series is based on an interview David Cayley recorded with Herman Bianchi at his home in the Netherlands in May of 1997. The first program sketched his intellectual biography and his search for an account of justice that includes what's good as well as what's right. The second program examined old traditions of justice in the classical civilizations, in old Europe, and in the non-Western world and it looked at how these traditions were abandoned in favor of our current system of proportional payments for crime. Tonight, in the third and final episode of the series, Herman Bianchi looks at how the criminal law sows discord and dissent, and how a system aimed at peace and agreement might be constructed. The series is prepared and presented by David Cayley. civilization of the West, a powerful philosophical consensus favors punishment as the just and proper response to crime. In Plato's Gorgias, Socrates says that any man who escapes punishment for his misdeeds must be miserable far beyond all other men. Hegel calls punishment a right and states that an offender, by being punished, is honored as a rational being. Simone Weil claims that punishment is a vital need of the human soul. And Immanuel Kant, in an often quoted passage from his Philosophy of Law, says that if a civil society were to dissolve itself tomorrow, it would first have to execute the last murderer lying in prison so that blood guilt, his expression, would not fall on the people. The central difficulty with this consensus is identified in the Gospel of John. The Pharisees bring before Jesus a woman taken in adultery, as the King James Bible says. 
the Pharisees cite the law of Moses, calling for such an offender to be stoned to death, and then ask Jesus his opinion. He at first affects not to hear, but when they continue to press him, Jesus finally says, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. This answer, like a number of Jesus' other parries, is interesting as much for what it does not say as for what it does. It doesn't challenge or contradict the law, nor does it object in principle to punishment. Rather, it asks, who is qualified to punish? This, in essence, is Herman Bianchi's question about punishment. All of the philosophers I just quoted, Plato, Kant, Hegel, Fay, speak from the point of view of the offender's soul, or of society, or of the divinely ordained order of things, they suppose a perfectly disinterested punisher. Someone like the ideal judge imagined by the 18th century French philosopher Montesquieu, who says a judge should just be a mouth who pronounces the words of the law. But who is it, Bianchi wonders, who can do evil to others without himself being touched by it? If you ask people like judges and public prosecutors to punish, you're doing harm to them. I've given so many lectures to public prosecutors, to attorneys, to judges, and uh, once I was present at a uh, discussion they had. They were discussing what a judge, when he is interrogating a criminal in a pre-trial condition, whether he, uh, how you should treat the criminal, the suspect. And several of them said, oh yes, I never offer him a chair because she should feel it, you know, that he's standing where I'm sitting and he has to stand. And then the other one said, you seem to take delight in it. Well, why shouldn't I? He's a criminal. He should feel it. <laughs> if you harm a criminal, you're doing harm. You're doing exactly the same thing as he did. You're doing harm to another being. That's wrong, doing harm to another human being. So punishment is the criminal answer to a criminal act. Punishment is crime, is doing harm. Who are you? Who is giving you the right to do harm to another human being? Who are you? After a few lectures of that kind, I've never been invited by the judiciary anymore. They didn't hear what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that they were doing a good job by doing harm to people every day, day in, day out, day in, day out, they do harm to people. It's administration, you administer punishment. It's uh, daily work, five times a day. I mean, if I could understand this, if you punish with lo love, like, well, the ideal father, you know, who slaps the face of, of his boy, but he loves him, and very often it, uh, he would say, oh, sorry that I hit you, I didn't mean it. you deserved it, but I didn't mean it, if I love you, hear my kisses. Okay, fine. Punishment, to be just, Bianchi says, must be carried out with heartfelt concern. But this cannot be done in the real circumstances of the criminal justice system. If you punish someone, said Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher rabbi of the 12th century, he becomes your brother. Maimonides spoke as someone who believed in punishment. If a criminal is not punished, he says in his guide for the perplexed, injurious acts will not be abolished. 
and none of those who design aggression will be deterred. But he also recognized that punishment could be justified only as an effort to awaken the conscience of the offender, and not as vengeance. A judge, he says, must act entirely for the sake of heaven. Simone Weil says something similar when she calls punishment a method of procuring good for men who do not desire it. When punishment fulfills merely repressive purposes, she says, it becomes something even more hideous than crime. Punishment then can only be just as an agonizing personal commitment to someone's correction. A criminal justice system is another matter. Prisons, as nearly everyone knows, are violent, exploitative places, and people are sent there not for their own good, but as an object lesson to their fellow citizens. To characterize this system, Herman Bianchi uses the term anomie, a term he borrows from one of the founders of modern sociology, Emil Durkheim. This term has been given many inflections since Durkheim first put it into circulation, and now often evokes a sense of aimlessness and disease. But it comes originally from the Greek word for law, nomos, and means literally lawless, without law. In calling the criminal justice system anomic, Bianchi uses the word law in the double sense that Jews give to the word Torah. The Torah is the five books of Moses and the many positive legal injunctions contained in those books. But it is also the law in a larger, more living sense, the law as an intuitive, inward experience of how things should be. Bianchi first finds the word anomi used in this way in the New Testament, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, he was a Jew. He even had got the rabbinical uh, education. And so when he used the word nomos, which is law in Greek, he did not mean Roman law or the Greek law, he meant the law, Torah. He was very proud of being a Roman citizen, but he was a Jew and a Roman citizen, which was rare for Jews in those days because they were at war with the Romans, as you know. And he said, uh, although the Romans have no law, they are not anomic because... Torah may be present in other nations as well. Don't forget, he was trying to leave Jewry, Judaism, and to found the Christian religion. Uh, there are several theologians today who say we should not speak about Christianity, but about Paulism, because he, he, he made that religion. And so he said the Romans are not anomic, because they have the law of God in their heart. The heathens, the pagans, have the law of God in the heart. Not only the Jews, everyone has. And makes them, we have to make them aware of it. That was the message of St. Paul, which made him leave Jewry, you know, and Judaism. What was true of Paul, Bianchi says, was also true of Emil Durkheim, 18th centuries later. Durkheim, too, was a Jew and the son of a rabbi. He chose the Greek-derived term anomi to describe the alienation he saw around him, but Bianchi believes that he gave it the Jewish rather than the Greek sense of law. I think that the majority of sociologists have not understood what Durkheim meant with anomia. He did not mention the word Torah, but what he meant was having no, no Torah feelings in your behavior, in your 
Uh, a bit like St. Paul, he thought the Torah is in your heart, the law is in your heart. It is the everlasting, the everlasting attempt to bring peace into this world. And you need to have the qualities of the law to bring peace. When the law, when legislation does not give you the tools to bring peace, it's a bad law, it's anomic. It's an anomic law. It's law. Because when, when St. Paul said the Romans have no law, he knew that there was a legal system, one of the best of the world. Now, Durkheim used the word anomie to begin with because he wanted to understand why so many well-to-do, wealthy Jewish families in France committed suicide in his days. That's his book on suicide. He didn't understand that Jewish businessmen well-to-do, committed suicide. There were quite a few suicidal attempts in his days in France. And he, now his explanation was, he said, well, listen, when the Jews were still living in the ghettos, that was not that bad, because they could live along Torah. He didn't say that, but he said they, they were nomic, they were eunomic, they were not anomic. But then... The freedom for the Jews came with the 19th century, you know, all the anti-Jewish legislation and all the countries in Europe was lifted, was, was no longer there. Uh, Jews were considered normal citizens like anyone else. But then they had to live according to another legal system, which is not based on tzedakah. And that's why they run into great problems and that's why they can't understand the world any longer, the world they had to live in, and then they commit suicide because life has lost its sense. Now, Durkheim is describing all that without using the word Torah. That's a strange thing. He didn't want to. Of course, he knew it. His father was a rabbi. He, he went to a rabbinical school when he was young, although when he was 10 or 12 years old, he was sent to a Roman Catholic uh, lycée in France because his father wanted him uh, to, to be a boy of good learning. Anomie, in the sense that Bianchi thinks Durkheim intended, characterizes the contemporary system of criminal justice. This system has an abundance of legal rules. The Canadian Criminal Code runs to some 300 pages. But in Bianchi's view, it fails to manifest or convey the experience or feeling of justice. It makes offenders suffer, but offers them no living example to emulate. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, draws a distinction between the letter and the spirit. The word written in tables of stone as against what he calls the word written in fleshy tables of the heart. The letter kills, he says, the spirit gives life. Bianchi draws a similar distinction between anomic justice and the eunomic or law-manifesting justice he would like to see. In his book Justice as Sanctuary, Bianchi says that there are three possible ways of modeling justice, which he calls consensus, dissensus, and assensus. The current system is based on the assumption of consensus in society. It derives from the idea that society is based on a contract to which all have implicitly agreed. The consensus idea comes from the Enlightenment. You find it with John Locke and Rousseau, etc., they said that's the contrat social of, uh, because Rousseau said, well, we are born free, but long, 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 long ago, 
we had a consensus about the way we should be ruled. We have given up parts of our freedom, of our liberties, our freedom, just to continue society. That's the consensus idea, the contrat social of Rousseau. We have consensus about what is murder and what is theft and uh, how we should deal with it. So the judge in a court, in a modern court, thinks I'm doing good work because the whole nation supports my work. I do it for the society, for the community, I punish the criminals and everyone agrees with it. There is consensus on our work in this society, that's what I believe. The second possible model of justice is dissensus, a term which derives from Marxist sociology. Dissensus implies that the members of society are divided by class and therefore will never agree on a set of general norms. The most obvious example of dissensus is the conduct of international affairs, where conflicts are finally settled by war and only the law of superior force prevails. Those who view criminal justice in terms of dissensus will argue that crime always has a political character, that it reflects conditions of oppression and can only be understood as a misguided response to these conditions. No common interest in this view unites the powerful and privileged dispensers of justice with the unfortunate persons whom they imprison. Bianchi thinks that there is something to both these models, but that neither of them is adequate. Crime, for him, does have a partially political character, but this does not absolve individuals of responsibility for criminal acts. A consensus does deplore certain crimes, but this need not lead automatically to punishment. The consensus and dissensus models of justice split the truth in two. Each reveals something by denying something else. The idea of consensus papers over the unequal distribution of power. The idea of dissensus denies the universality of certain norms. Bianchi has therefore coined a third term, assensus, and argued for the adoption of an assensus model of crime control. His idea is to try to affirm the reality of justice without claiming that there is an agreed and advanced consensus about what it is. We have to work to find out where justice is. We will never find it, really. So it's a development towards this assensus. And I had it from, uh, from Cardinal Newman, a man I have admired very much. You know, the Anglican uh, theologian who became Roman Catholic. And he uh, wrote a book called A Grammar of Ascent. He tried to explain why he had become a Roman Catholic, and at the same time, it was a basic criticism on the Roman Catholic ideas. What he was against was that both the Anglican Church, but most certainly the Roman Catholic Church, said, we have the truth. God has bestowed his truth upon us. And humans said, no, we will never know the truth. We have been thrown out of paradise. We will try to. We have to ascend to it, and that's also an Augustinian idea. We have to ascend towards the city of God, and in the end we will be there. But as long as we are not, we have no complete truth. So it was also, in a way, 
a basic criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, who said, we have the truth. He became a Roman Catholic because he expected more from the Roman Catholic Church than from the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not discussing that, whether he was right in that or not. But uh, his, his uh, grammar of it said, I admired very much, this is my basic philosophy. We will never know the truth entirely. In his essay in aid of a grammar of assent, Newman distinguishes between real assent and what he calls notional assent. Notional assent is superficial. Real assent is substantial understanding involving the whole person. In Bianchi's interpretation of Newman, the important properties of real assent are, first, that it may take considerable time to achieve, second, that it cannot be forced, and third, that it emerges within a community and not just out of solitary reflection. In Bianchi's view, this sustained, collective reaching for assent is how justice ought to unfold, and indeed how it does unfold in much of daily life. We are endlessly engaged in discussions we never finally settle about what is right and what is good. The question of justice, as Mennonite leader Dave Worth has said, is how are we going to live together? Criminal justice, however, presents a different picture. There the issue is cut and dried, a matter only of determining the degree of the offender's guilt and assigning a proportional amount of suffering. Winning the offender's assent to justice is no part of the process, nor does he have any power to propose a solution to the problem he has created. The victim is similarly powerless. Punishment is the sum and total of what a criminal trial can produce. When justice is practiced in this way, Bianchi says, conflict is perpetuated and even intensified. An census type of justice would seek grounds for reconciliation and correction. A current example of how this might work is to be found in South Africa, where the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission is trying to deal with South Africa's past. Bianchi believes it to be a model and admires the part Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu played in its establishment. You know, I'm a great admirer of Bishop Tutu in South Africa. He says, no political procedures, no trials, because then we get the civil war. Don't do it. Forget your vengeance. And the black people are listening. Mandela is listening. He said, yes, no political procedures, no punishment. Then we get the civil war. The same happened in Spain. Why is Spain a democracy? There were no political procedures, no trials of the Franquists who did all these wrongs. Let's forget it. Let's look forward. Don't punish. So the Spanish, why is Spanish a democracy? Because they had no political trials when it became a democracy. And Mandela and Tutu are trying to do the same thing. I'm a great admirer of him. And Tutu has said, I'll do everything I can to prevent trials from coming up. Give them a chance to, he, he founded the Reconciliation Commission and if people admitted the crimes they had done, there was amnesty. Only admit it. Admit it that you've done. That's reconciliation. This man understands it. In 
European societies before the 18th century, diverse and sometimes contradictory legal regimes coexisted. The right of sanctuary is an example. A sanctuary was a place where a criminal could not be arrested, a place where secular authority did not apply, and the laws prevailing all around were suspended. Such an institution, by its very existence, recognized that the laws of God and the laws of man were not always the same. No single uniform procedure could answer all circumstances. The 18th century English jurist William Blackstone, in his commentaries on the laws of England, lists as many as ten different kinds of law, which all prevailed simultaneously in the England of his day. He includes, amongst others, natural law, divine law, the law of nations, the common law, the local customary law, and ecclesiastical law. This diversity, in Herman Bianchi's view, had important consequences. It allowed appeal from one kind of law to another, and it acknowledged the imperfection of any single type of law. People living within a variety of legal regimes, Bianchi writes in Justice's Sanctuary, were inclined to doubt that society could be ruled or controlled by law and law enforcement alone. This changed, he believes, with the Enlightenment, the French Revolution, and the emergence of the modern administrative state. A new confidence was expressed in law as a tool of governance. The definition of law narrowed until it comprised only the legislative and administrative rules enacted by national states. Crime control became a state monopoly, and public prosecution and punishment of criminals became mandatory. Theoretically, this new idea of law was in the interests of equality and the control of power. All would be equal before the law, and all would be subject to the same scale of penalties for crime. What has happened, in fact, Bianchi says, is that a new judicial tyranny has been erected, while the prisons continue to be full of those who have grown up poor and abused. His solution is to stop trying to shoehorn all cases into one uniform procedure and return to what he calls dialectical thinking about justice. This would involve setting up two systems of criminal justice side by side, one the present punitive anomic system, the other, a new eunomic system in which offenders would have the opportunity to negotiate and act on their own behalf. I've always been impressed by dialectical thinking. Plato, Augustine, Hegel, Marx. You cannot know the good without evil. You cannot know beauty without ugliness. You cannot know God without the devil. To understand the city of God, you have to know the city of the world. And I, I thought we will never succeed in having a pure, just system of criminal justice. So I thought a righteous criminal justice system should be a double system, a dialectical system, a system that's good, a system that's not good, because you can know the good system because there is a wrong system. The wrong system is punitive. The good system is, in a way, correctional. It's uh, restorative. It's uh, redress, etc., etc. It should be a dialect, because we can never rid of, not to mention the fact that all the feelings of retribution that people foster, 
And when you have a, a judge in a criminal court who is able to think a little, will say, well, listen, we have to do that. If not, people would exert retribution by themselves. So it's better that we do it and keep it under a certain control if you leave it to the people. So if, if your system would lead again to vengeance, to feuds, etc., etc., etc. That's the common remark. And I say, yes, that's true, but we should have a double system. And uh, in that way of a dialectical system, I'm, I stand rather alone because the other abolitionists want the complete abolition of criminal law and prisons, the complete abolition of it. And they say it's wrong. When you are a pacifist, you're against war. What you like is little war. A little war instead of a big war. You want a few prisons instead of many. I said, we will never, we will never reach it, the complete expression of prisons, because there are dangerous people. And there are people unwilling to do redress. And if you enforce them to redress the harm they've done, you come back to a punitive system because they have to enforce them. This is Herman Bianchi's proposal in a nutshell. Create a restorative, reconciliatory mode of criminal justice and employ hostile procedures only when this first mode fails or is rejected or abused. For the mechanics of such a system, he reaches back to the old right of sanctuary or asylum. If the offender is to have the right to propose redress for the harm he has done, Bianchi says, he must have a safe space from which to negotiate. How this originally worked is illustrated by procedures at the Minster of Beverley, a medieval English monastery in Yorkshire that possessed the right of sanctuary from the 10th to the 16th centuries. A homicidal criminal was allowed sanctuary for 30 days on condition that he was willing to negotiate with the victim or the relatives of the victim. During those 30 days, he was treated as a guest and allowed to have his meal at the abbot's table. The next 30 days, he was no longer treated as a guest of the abbot and he had to eat in the kitchen together with the serfs of the, the minster. After that, he was allowed another 30 days, and then he had to work in the garden. So his status was lowered gradually. After 90 days, he had to leave the minster if he had not been successful in the negotiations, and either the monks would bring him to the coast and find a ship for him to leave the country, Perhaps going to Holland, across the North Sea. <laughs> so they dumped the criminals in Holland. Or he could stay in the, in the Minster, in the fabric of the Minster. That was a Minster in those days was a pre thing, with houses and gardens, vegetable gardens and so on around it for the livestock of the monks. And then he had to work in the garden, he could stay there. But it was this kind of prison then for life term because as soon as he would leave the precinct of the Minster, he was in great danger for vengeance. So that's how it worked. And now I thought to myself, why not trying to have a sanctuary, an officially allowed sanctuary, not necessarily a church, because a modern church is unsuited 
voor uh, lodging lots of people. Er zijn no showers, er zijn no bathrooms, er zijn no dit, no dit, no that, no real kitchen, etc. So just have a sanctuary somewhere. There are a lot of uh, monasteries that are no longer in use. They would be very suited for an... Uh, and people can stay there on condition that they are willing to find a solution and a settlement of the dispute with either the relatives of the victim or a representative of the state, because there are also victimless crimes, very dangerous crimes, without a victim. And then your, uh, the prosecutor is, is the state. You have to find a solution. It may last very long before the solution is being found, and those people have to stay in the And Then lots of people say, well, then it's a prison. I said, no, because in the prison you're not allowed to negotiate with... Uh, you just have to subdue yourself to the sentence. Whereas in the sanctuary, it looks like a prison because police can be around it, you know, to prevent you from escaping. Because, after all, you're a very dangerous person. But you have to find a solution. You've caused the conflict, so you have to find a solution. Then people say, well, what kind of solution? I said, well, use your imagination. Use your imagination. Well, in the Middle Ages, very often either they did pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Well, that makes no sense today, because uh, within short uh, there will be a special uh, plane service between uh, between here and there, Santiago de Compostela, and it makes no sense. And there is no longer suffering, even walking, to go by foot to Santiago de Compostela. Today means nothing, it's no suffering. You can sleep in nice hotels on the way. Five-star hotels everywhere, so that makes no sense. There were no five-star hotels in the Middle Ages. So uh, it may well be that you offer yourself to do some good work in Africa or wherever, where there is war and pestilence, perhaps. It would purify your soul. It may well be that lots of people, criminals, are unable to do that. And there is no solution but staying in the prison. I'm sorry. Bianchi's proposal, as he notes here, does not assume that everyone who has committed a crime will be able or willing to try to find a way out of the resulting trouble. It only opens the possibility. This has two important advantages. The first is that it conserves good. If an offender is contrite, and willing to make amends, it allows him to try, rather than forcing him into a hostile attitude by despising and wasting his better feelings. The second is that it imagines a procedure in which justice as peacemaking is actually manifested. Punitive justice answers violence with violence. It addresses the offender on the same plane on which he has acted. You've done wrong to somebody, so we're going to do wrong to you. Justice as a census would actually model a better way of settling disputes. Those who end up in prison are often people who have simply adopted the behaviors prevailing around them as they grew up. It is vain to hope that imprisonment will teach them to do justice when they have never experienced justice. The ways of justice must, first of all, be just, Bianchi says. Otherwise, people are being punished for not seeing what they have never been shown. The research we have done so far points to the fact that the better education you have had, 
the more you are tuned on the idea of reconciliation dispute settlement. Why? Because you know how to settle a dispute. You've learned that. That's why intellectuals have a much better chance before court than others, because you've learned to discuss things, to talk. I learned it quite well, you see that. I can talk and talk and talk and talk. I would over-talk the court when I went before court. <laughs> I would out-talk them, you know. But, but all intellectuals always have a much better chance before court, of course. So, also in settling a dispute, you are less scared. The lower education you have, the more retributive feelings you have, because you do not know how to settle a dispute. So they, they should be helped. It's, that would be a new uh, task for probation officers, you know, is to help dis settle disputes based on, on, uh, on the criminal act. A system of criminal justice oriented to resolving conflict and redressing harm would remedy what Bianchi sees as the central defect in the current system, the powerlessness of the offender. Justice requires the offender's assent to justice, and so there can be no justice, Bianchi states bluntly, where the offender is made powerless. Without assent, punishment only strengthens and hardens resistance. An offender is redeemed only by what he agrees to undertake by way of penance or restitution. The point is important in view of current concerns about overcrowded prisons and the emergence of an informal consensus within the Canadian justice system that this pressure ought to be relieved by increasing non-custodial sentences like community service. Community service, Bianchi says, is still imposed punishment rather than agreed restitution. It is therefore not a real alternative, but simply more of the same. My fears are this. That so-called community service is not new. That's a very old-fashioned punishment. The gas pipes in London were laid in the streets of London in the 1820s by community service, by, by criminals, in black-white-striped uh, pyjamas that were on the street, you know. Today in Holland, for instance, they are so stupid, for instance, you get the community service sentence that you have to wipe the corridors in an, um, in a hospital or in uh, and then everyone of course everyone, all the the patients in the hospital or the the elderly people in an, in a home for the elderly know that you are a criminal doing community service of course they know that's very humiliating why not giving him a black and white striped pyjama like they did in the 1820s. That's forced labor. It's forced labor. It's an old term. It's not new. It's not new at all. You find it a lot in the, in the 18th and the early 19th century. A lot. But what's wrong with it? Aside from it's not being new. That's not necessarily a fault. Because it's, it's, uh, it's slavery. You have no uh, uh, labor protection. You can be exploited for everything, especially if the prosecution would hire you out to, for commercial purposes. Then you work for Philips in the computer department without pay. <laughs> and Philips made great profit. It's the reintroduction of slavery. We should not forget that the Romans had no uh, punitive system, but if you were in great debts because of a crime, that might happen, you know, you had killed someone. You negotiated, well, you had to pay uh, 500 horses or uh, 500 gold coins. 
You didn't have them. Then you could be sold into slavery for the rest of your life. Or you become, become this, a slave of the prosecutor. Not the public prosecutor, but the plaintiff. Become his slave. That happened a lot. A lot of slaves were dead slaves in Rome. So you become a slave of Philip's. It, it's a very bad system. It's, it's going back to slavery. It's going back to forced labor and slavery. The amount of community service being assigned by Canadian judges has increased substantially since the fall of 1996, when Parliament amended the Criminal Code. At that time, a section was added respecting what was called conditional sentencing. It allowed sentences of less than two years to be served in the community, so long as judges were satisfied there was no threat to public safety. The sentences imposed under this section so far have generally involved many hours of community service. Bianchi's critique of community service argues that these changes should not necessarily be regarded as significant reforms. They may save money and reduce the pressure to build more prisons, but they leave untouched what Bianchi regards as the real problem, the servitude of the offender. This difficulty can be addressed only by a conception of justice which stresses the free consent of everyone involved in a criminal conflict to what will reveal itself as right during the course of possibly prolonged discussion. Such a conception obviously has implications that go far beyond the question of what to do when a crime is committed. Indeed, if a philosophy of a census governs society generally, Bianchi says, most of what is now prosecuted as crime could be prevented. Policing, for him, is a good example. It ought to concentrate on prevention, he says, but instead it concentrates on repression after the fact. When I was a little boy, before the war, I remember, police was going around on pedal bikes, many of them. And I remember if we were, it was forbidden in those two days, they wouldn't even dream of forbidding it, but we were, we were playing uh, football on the street, you know, and sometimes it happened that the football fell, fell into a little guard in the front of a house or was even smashing a window, and they would say, hoo, hoo, hoo. there was policemen on the pedal bike, or two of them. So they were controlling the streets. Now all the police are sitting behind computer screens, that's what they are doing, that's technology. And Every time you're here, although New York has, has really been successful in bringing the policemen back into the street, two of them going around, having little uh, telephones with them to protect themselves or ask for assistance when, that, when necessary. So people should see p policemen on the street. That's preventive. I'm in favor of all social problems can be prevented by the right way and the, the right authorities. But police is now, now too busy with the drug problem, with this problem, with this problem, they do it behind the screens, and you never see them on the street. And that's a very bad thing. It, it's always repressive. Whatever they do, it's repressive. Police has become entirely repressive because of the technological means they have. Yeah. They did not do that before the war because then they were very much more preventive, looking at people, and people felt safe because there was always a policeman around the corner on his pedal bike or walking. And now they are sitting in police cars. So uh, preventive measures, well, police on the street, no longer behind computer screens. But, you know, policemen say 
Nobody wants to go on the street, Mokbri. I said, yeah, but you are a semi-military organization. Are you a police officer? Just send your men into the street. They have to obey, and they? You're a semi-military organization, aren't you? Yes, that's true, but the policeman in the street has, in the police corps, a very low status. If he wants promotion, he has to work behind the screen because that's paid. In the street, there's no pain. I said, well, then improve the salary of the policeman in the street. Give him a good salary and give a lower salary to the man behind the screen. That sort of thing, you know. But it's, uh, police is too independent, you know. They Now, in Rotterdam, the, the Lord Mayor in Rotterdam has appointed a new top chief commissioner for the police. And he's not from the police force himself, he's from outside. Great problems. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to obey orders because he's not one of us, you know, that sort of thing. And so police is not well organized any longer. It was better organized, say, 75 years ago. Mm -hmm. And all these things have to be improved, so it has to be an all-over system of preventive measures. Mm -hmm. And then we don't need that community service anymore. That's putting the horse behind the car. That's what we, that's an old Dutch saying. And of course, uh, the top authorities are aware of the problems, but they they have no time to take the right measures. It's something wrong it, with our social control system. That's the problem. That's the main problem. And community service is, as I said, uh, the car before the horse. It's too late. That doesn't help. The prevalence of crime, in Bianchi's view, represents a breakdown of social control, not a deterioration in human nature, as so many seem tempted to believe. Crime as an element of human nature is a constant. All of us, he believes, would be capable of crime under certain circumstances. Many of us have committed crimes without their being detected or punished. The frequency of crime, for him, is a mirror held up to society, and not just an expression of the moral disease of individuals. He asks us to look with the eyes of the English Puritan, John Bradley, who, when he saw a man being led to the scaffold, said, There, but for the grace of God, go I. This sense of crime as a collective predicament does not absolve offenders or free them from the liability their acts have created, but it does locate them within our community and make them worthy of an opportunity to make amends. Responding to a breakdown in social control by an increase of punishment is futile and self-defeating, Bianchi says, first because it perpetuates and even strengthens the evil, and second because it turns attention away from the source of the harm that is being done. Even in a census type of justice, though it might mitigate this harm, would not undo it. Justice consists, first of all, in how we live, and it is in how we live, Bianchi says, that the real solution to crime is to be sought. In 1989, Herman Bianchi retired as professor of criminology at the Free University of Amsterdam. Justice as Sanctuary was his farewell to criminology and his testament. Since then, he has taken up a new career as a novelist and poet. 
a volume of poems in English called A Breviary of Torment, was published in 1991 under the pen name Thomas Cashett. Bianchi's immediate hopes for reform have obviously been disappointed. The Netherlands today has many more people in prison than when he began, and the idea of reinstituting sanctuaries has not been taken up by the people whom he hoped to influence, the philosophers and practitioners of law. And yet, I think there is something of enduring importance in Bianchi's work. In Canada today, there is considerable interest in alternatives to imprisonment. One stimulus has been official concern about a rate of imprisonment that has grown steadily in the 90s and must soon lead to new prison construction if the growth is not stopped. Another has been a growing recognition of the futility of imprisonment as a crime control measure. I think Bianchi introduces a crucial distinction into the discussion of alternatives. We presently have a uniform, one-size-fits-all system of criminal justice, a system entirely focused on what writer Howard Zare calls assigning blame and giving out pain. Bianchi recognizes two concepts of justice, the present retributive approach, symbolized by the prison, and a peacemaking, agreement-seeking approach, symbolized by the sanctuary. His genius, to me, has been to suggest that we ought to have both, rather than getting caught in a sterile either-or debate. Creating such a dual or dialectical system of justice would have several advantages. It would protect emerging alternatives of the peacemaking type from co-optation by a punitive system with which they're incompatible. It would maintain a critical distinction between an offender's coerced obedience and his free consent to a remedy. And it would nourish the good whenever it appeared without making utopian claims about the goodwill of offenders in general. Justice cannot always be achieved, but Bianchi's proposal would at least allow a saving clarity about what it is and what it isn't. Changes are now taking place at the margins of criminal justice systems in a number of countries. The growth in mediation, the use of sentencing circles in native communities, and the substitution of community conferences for court hearings and juvenile justice are all examples. Bianchi's work, in my view, offers guidance to these changes. His youthful hopes for a revolution in criminal justice may have been disappointed, but from a mature perspective, he can see that he has contributed to the intellectual foundation of a movement that may last much longer than a lifetime. When I began my career as a professor in criminology in 1959, I thought it would be able to, to come to radical changes in the system. 35 years later, I realized it had not. But the following thing happened at the goodbye ceremony at my university when I retired. I was addressed by several people, by the dawn of the university, who spoke very friendly words to me and said, you have been dean of the faculty of law in very difficult years, you know, when the university was extending, when the student caused all these problems, the free speech movement. You've done a wonderful job and the university is grateful to you. Thank you, my dear colleague. Those was very nice words. But he was not a lawyer, he was the faculty of physics or something. <laughs> Then the dean of the faculty of law, also very friendly words. 
Then several colleagues. One colleague was a forensic psychiatrist. He said, dear Herman, I like you as a person. I see you as a friend. But my dear God, what have you achieved? Nothing. And someone else said, uh, yes, I'm sorry to say, but you have not achieved anything. And then I got up because I was expected to answer all these remarks. So first I thanked the Don for his kind words, then I thanked the Dean for his kind words, and then I said, now my colleague. Your remark is unfair because a system that went astray in the last 700 years, you cannot change in one human life. That's important, unfair. But another thing, dear Bart, his name was Bart, I've not been writing for you. You would never understand it. I'm like St. Francis, you know. I have not been preaching to you, but when the people, the sinners, are not listening, St. Francis spoke to the birds. You know, where my birds are, they over there. There was a student sitting on the balcony. <laughs> I'm like St. Francis. I've been preaching to the birds. It takes time. It takes another generation, another two generations. But one has once to begin. Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the third and final program of Justice as Sanctuary, a profile of Dutch criminologist Herman Bianchi. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Technician, Dave Field. Associate producers, Kate Pemberton and Liz Nage. Producer, Richard Handler. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. You can get a transcript of tonight's program for $8, or you can order the entire series for $19. Prices include shipping and taxes. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Coming up next on Radio 1 is the Hourly News, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers. Thank you.